Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy, the first chapter. We're going to read some verses there in just a moment that'll help to set up everything that we want to think about over the course of these next few minutes. You know, preaching is designed to be a participatory activity. Uh, I'm certainly going to be taking part by doing some speaking and some leading of our minds in this discussion, but uh, you have a part in that as well, and you can be involved in that by listening attentively and by following along in the Scriptures as we uh, work along in the Bible over the course of these next few minutes. What a beautiful and crisp morning that the Lord has blessed us with today. You can certainly uh, smell and feel and just sense that fall is right around the corner. And that, of course, reminds us of the fact that God and His promises that He made so long ago about the changing of the seasons and seed time and harvest and those things would continue on uh, for as long as the earth should stand. And those promises continue to be in full force and effect. And because of that and for many other reasons, uh, we devote this day as a day of worship and devotion unto God and to the consideration of His Word. And that's what we want to be about the business of right now. Let's read together in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm reading here beginning in verse 18 where Paul says this. 1 Timothy 1, 18. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Their names are only one word, but they are etched forever in the annals of history. Names like Titanic, Hindenburg, Challenger. Those names are associated with some of the worst tragedies in United States history. For example, the Titanic was hailed as being the best and fastest ship afloat. It was the most elegant cruise liner ever created, so massive, so strong, it was professed to be unsinkable. But on April the 14th, 1912, at approximately 11.40 p.m., it hit an iceberg. And in less than three hours' time, it sank at the cost of 1,500 lives. Similarly, the Hindenburg, it was touted as the most luxurious passenger airship ever known to man. It was considered one of the safest traveling vessels in the sky. But on May the 6th, 1937, as it approached a docking tower in New Jersey... It suddenly burst into flames and came crashing to the ground where 36 people lost their lives. A little more recently than these examples would be the Challenger disaster. School children all across America, including yours truly, were watching on television the morning of January the 28th, 1986 when the Challenger space shuttle launched flawlessly, carrying seven crew members including a school teacher. But 73 seconds later, it exploded into a million pieces and every person on board was killed. Now, what ties together all of those disasters is the big question of how. How did this happen? How did this happen when NASA has so many safety protocols in place? 
How did this happen when the Titanic had so many watertight compartments? How did this happen when the Hindenburg had so many successful flights prior to the crash? What went wrong? In fact, to this very day, people still ask about those disasters. How did this happen? And it is that very same question that I believe we as Christians ask whenever spiritual disasters occur, spiritual disasters like the one we just read about in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You know, I don't know everything about the blasphemy of Hymenaeus and Alexander, but I want you to notice that Paul describes what they did as making shipwreck of their faith. Paul did not say these guys, well, they, they kind of backslid a little bit. Or you know, they've, they've kind of stumbled in their walk with Jesus. No! Shipwrecked. A catastrophe. A disaster of epic proportions. Here are some people who used to serve the Lord Jesus. Some people who used to be walking the straight and narrow to heaven. Some people who used to be workers in the kingdom, but then, bam! All of a sudden, they are now crashing and they are burning, leaving all the rest of us to stand back and to survey the wreckage of the broken pieces of the Christianity that they have left behind. And you know the kind of thing that I'm talking about, don't you? I'm talking about when maybe someone moves away. And a couple years pass, we don't see them. And then maybe one day we run into a mutual friend of that person and we say, Oh, hey, have you talked to Jim recently? Man, I haven't seen him in a long time. How's Jim doing? How's him and Susie doing these days? And the person's expression and countenance just changes and they say, Oh, I guess you haven't heard. Jim cheated on Susie. He left her, and he left the church. What? How did that happen? Jim was a Bible class teacher. I mean, we went to their wedding. I mean, he and Susie were a great couple. He was such a strong Christian. I remember uh, last year I was in a meeting at a congregation that I had preached at several years prior. And I asked, I inquired about a family that I had remembered from my previous visit. It was actually a family that I had spent some time with that week and I was just so impressed with them as a husband and a wife and their two kids. And man, they were just so devoted to the Lord it seemed and to the Lord's people, to the church and were so involved. And when I didn't see them last year, I asked someone, Hey, where's that family at? Where are they? Did they, maybe a job calls them to have to move away and go somewhere? And the response that I got was no... No, they're still here in town. They left us, and they're now attending the big denominational church down the road. What? How can that be? Those people were so involved here. They they seemed so committed to the Lord and to the Lord's people. How can that be? Or maybe even as well, you've had the experience of knowing someone and maybe holding them in very high esteem because of their faith, whether it be a preacher or an elder or an elder's wife or just some older Christian that mentored you and meant a lot to you. And you look to that individual as being a real spiritual hero, someone who was worthy of emulation. But then, then one day you learn that he or she is no longer abiding in the doctrine of Christ. 
That that person is no longer faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ anymore and you're left bewildered. How? Why? How is that even possible? These are devastating blows. They are the kind of devastating blows that happen not only in the first century with guys like Hymenaeus and Alexander, but these are the kinds of blows that continue to happen even today. Why does that happen? How do Christians allow their faith to run aground, particularly when they know better? And I want you to understand this morning that 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 is what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about some new convert who's only been a Christian for maybe a couple of weeks and they're now slipping back into some bad habits of sin. No. No, I'm talking about a Christian who has some experience. A Christian who has a a firm and, and solid knowledge of the Word of God. It's not a knowledge issue, no. We're talking about a Christian who's demonstrated some some faithfulness and some fidelity to the Lord in their past, but somewhere along the way, they found themselves in sin and error. They had made shipwreck of their Christianity. And unfortunately, many times in those cases, as you probably know, many times they never recover from that disaster. How does that happen? And I hope you understand the reason why I keep asking that question this morning about how does that happen, how does that come to be. The reason I'm asking that is because if that can happen to others, then that can happen to me. And that can happen to you as well. Why do spiritual disasters like this occur? Well, this morning I want to share with you three ideas for why that occurs. Three ideas right out of the Word of God. And I want to do that not only to inform us, but furthermore so that we can be equipped and we can be prepared to stop that process. To halt that process before it ever even reaches the level of a spiritual disaster. And I believe all of that begins whenever we have just a lazy attitude about sin. Namely, whenever we fail to take sin seriously. It's the book of Proverbs that I'm looking for here in Proverbs chapter 28. In Proverbs chapter 28, listen to Solomon in verse 13. In Proverbs 28 and in verse 13, Solomon says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What do you do when you sin? What do you do? What are you supposed to do whenever you sin? Well, How are you supposed to deal with that? Now, Christians do sin. I hope you understand that. The question is, when it happens, what do you do? Well, this passage in Proverbs 28, as well as many others just like it, teach that the correct response, the only response, is always to confess and to forsake those sins. Confess them to the Lord. Confess them to whoever else they need to be confessed to. Repent. Change. Get rid of those things. Turn to God in humility and seek His forgiveness. And I want you to notice from Proverbs 28 verse 13 that that isn't just for a few select sins. No, that includes Every sin, not just the big and glaring and obvious ones. No, that includes even as well those sins that we might consider small or minor. Because I'll tell you, the temptation on our part 
is to treat those, those little sins, quote unquote, to treat those little sins differently than the things that we might consider big sins. You know, a, a little white lie. Or, you know, saying a little cuss word here or there. Or maybe you know, spreading a little bit of gossip about somebody, talking about them when I shouldn't. Or, you know, maybe being a little bit impatient, a little bit impulsive. The tendency in those areas is that we're just going to kind of conceal those transgressions, as Solomon says. We're just going to kind of sweep them under the rug, maybe just even act like they don't exist because, well, they're just not that big of a deal. But the truth of the matter is, all sins are an affront to God. All sins are an affront to His holiness. Yes, I understand that murder and robbing a bank, yeah, those things need the Proverbs 28 verse 13 treatment. Those things need to be confessed and forsaken. But you know what? So does that little white lie. So does that little bit of gossip. So does whatever other sin I've tried to minimize and downplay. Listen to Jesus about this in Matthew 6. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 6, there is this prayer that is recorded. And here is just a portion of that prayer. In Matthew 6 and in verse 12, Jesus says to pray this. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. My question is, who is that prayer given to? Who's that prayer for? That prayer was not delivered by Jesus to tax collectors who were involved in massive fraud and theft. No. That prayer was not given to a Sanhedrin council member who was busted on the street corner recently for buying cocaine. No. That prayer was given to... That prayer was given to Jesus' disciples. The very guys who followed and traveled with Jesus. How much trouble did those boys get into? What kind of things were they doing that Jesus recognized that they needed to be praying this kind of prayer? But the fact of the matter is, Jesus knew people. He knew what all people are like. Jesus knew that even the most devoted followers of Him give in to temptation from time to time. Jesus knew that for the child of God, sin is an ever-present reality and that even God's disciples, they need protection from the evil one. And so what Jesus does in Matthew 6 is He urges, actually He commands a certain kind of attitude toward all sin. That is, we're going to treat all sin as being serious, as being problematic. That is a foundational attitude to keeping away from any sin, whether we consider it big or whether we consider it small. I heard the story once about a young lady who she was dating and she was contemplating marriage with a man who had a very checkered past sexually. And so she sent an email to the preacher and she asked the preacher how should she, you know, how should she approach that? What, what should she consider if she were in fact to become that man's fiancé? Well, what the preacher asked was simply, well, how does that man feel about his past? 
Well, how does that man speak about his past sexual encounters? He wrote in the email, because a man who will brush off past fornication as being no big deal, I've moved on from that, is a man who has trained his conscience to do the same thing in the future with adultery. And you know what? I think that's exactly right. One of the surefire ways to crash and burn spiritually is to treat certain sins lightly. And we tend to do that, don't we? We categorize sins. Okay, these are big sins, and these are maybe kind of medium-grade sins, and these over here are smaller sins. And, you know, I take these over here really seriously, and you know, these kind of seriously, but these over here, you know, just not really that big of a deal. But when we have that kind of approach towards sin, and that's how we think about that, all that does is it serves to dull our defenses for whenever we do encounter and face those bigger temptations. Because the mind that says, ah, this over here isn't really anything to be concerned about, is the very same mind that in the process of time starts to say, oh, this over here, well, even this isn't really anything to worry about. All of my sins must be treated as dangerous and deadly because a failure to do that, a failure to do that will only result in disaster. Which leads right into this second reason that Christians oftentimes make a shipwreck of their faith. And that is whenever we let a series of small steps chain together to lead us further and deeper and farther than we ever, ever intended. You know, I said something a moment ago about adultery. Well, how does a person get to that point where they're, where they're being sexually immoral with a person that they're not married to, with another person's spouse? Well, actually, the Bible will show us how that happens. Look in Proverbs chapter 7. In Proverbs chapter 7, let's just watch this young man that the Bible, Solomon, he calls a fool. In Proverbs chapter 7, read with me beginning in verse 6. In Proverbs 7 and in verse 6, Solomon says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I seen among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Well, why does he lack sense, Solomon? Verse 8. Because he was passing along the street near her corner. We'll see very, very clearly in just a moment he's talking about the corner of the prostitute. He passed along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Stop right there. Are you keeping score? This young man is in the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, drop down to verse 12. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait, young man. These are parts of town where the harlot is frequently found. Why are you there? What are you doing? Verse 10, And behold, the woman comes and meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Buddy, why are you not paying attention to this woman's conduct, her conduct? What she's doing and how she's acting is a dead giveaway as to what you're getting into. Drop down to verse 13 now. She seizes him and kisses him. Whoa! Hey! Why are you not telling this woman to stop? Hey, this is wrong! 
Maybe the reason he doesn't is because maybe we can hear the young man begin to rationalize and to say, well, well, where does it say in the Bible that I can't kiss a little bit? Huh? Where's the verse that says that? And yet all of these missteps, they are chained together, aren't they? Wrong place, wrong time, ignoring the warnings, being too careless. He's listening to her lies, verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And the next thing you know, he falls headlong into sin, verse 22. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. (laughs) Spiritual disaster. Can we think for just a moment about this from the perspective of the devil? You know, Satan wants you to sin. He wants me to sin. He wants you and I to do what this guy does. He wants us to crash and burn spectacularly. Because not only does that mean that he'll have your soul or my soul, but that also means that as you or I flame out, that also means that that will bring about damage and discouragement to others around us on the way down, won't it? But of course, what all of us are probably thinking, especially fine people on a Sunday morning who get up early to worship God, is we're thinking, oh, well, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to do that. No way. No how. And Satan, he's well aware of that. He is. Satan understands that nobody exits the church building on Sunday morning and then just all of a sudden becomes a serial killer. That's not how that works. But what if Satan could get us, what if he could get us to just take one little step? Just a little step in his direction, a little step in the direction of a future catastrophe. So that maybe just bit by bit, little by little, one step at a time, we are getting closer and closer and closer to being destroyed. And of course, as all that's happening, even though we tell ourselves, oh, well, I'll I'll, I'll be okay. It's not that bad. Then what happens maybe is that suddenly that gap, it closes in a rush. Here's all this distance that we thought was between us and spiritual disaster, and very quickly that gap closes. And we find ourselves in full-blown disaster. In fact, isn't that what James describes in James chapter 1? In James chapter 1, James describes the progression of sin. In James chapter 1, I'm reading here in verse 14. In James 1 and in verse 14, James writes this. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death. You know, verse 15 uses the metaphor here of giving birth. And as many of you ladies might know, uh, birth and the labor process, that actually can take a really long time. My sister-in-law, she was in labor with our first nephew for about 39 hours. That's a long time. But you know what? There are also stories of women who went into labor in the backseat of a taxi. And that tells us what? That tells us that sometimes 
it can happen in a hurry. It can. What he describes, James describes in verse 15, that can happen fast. And that is exactly how sin can work. You take maybe a young man and a young lady who are dating. They're not married. Maybe they're teenagers. And they are home alone one night. Mom and dad, they're out for the evening, going to be gone for a while. And so this young man and this young lady, they've decided they're going to sit down on the couch and they're going to watch a movie. And they start to get cuddled up together. And what starts out is two just sweet little lovebirds innocently watching a movie for the evening, step by step, little by little, bit by bit, it turns into fornication very, very quickly. Think about alcoholics. How do you think alcoholics get to the place where they have made just a total mess, a total just disaster of their lives? Where's all that start? One drink. One drink. It was when they told themselves, oh, one drink won't hurt. You know, a beer every now and then, that's not going to be the end of the world. You know, going out with some friends, going out with some buddies and having some social drinking time together and just having a good time, that just isn't really all that bad. How empty those kinds of rationalizations must sound to the person whose life has become enslaved to alcohol. You know, we begin each day with a feeling that we are far away from any catastrophic sin. And we do that thinking not realizing that through our small compromises and our small concessions here and there, what is happening is, is we are inching closer and closer to disaster until finally a day comes that we are right up on it. And in the words of James, it brings forth death. There is indeed a progression to sin. And unless we recognize those gradual steps, and unless we recognize and see them happening in our own lives, when we say things like, oh, I, I can handle it. I can't. Hey, hey, it's not that bad. You know, I, I know that I shouldn't, but unless we stop that progression, then we are doomed to find ourselves making a total shipwreck of our faith. Because what all of this reveals thirdly and finally this morning is that really at the end of the day, really we just weren't as strong as we thought we were. You know, whenever something terrible happens, what we all tend to say is, oh, how could such a strong Christian get involved in that? I mean, we're just mystified about that. I mean, they, this person, they, they came to church regularly. I mean, they taught the little kids Bible class. They led the singing. And now all of a sudden, they get up and they announce that, that they're coming out of the closet. Or they make it known that they're going to start attending over here at some denomination, some church that was made by man. Or maybe even that they don't even believe in God or believe in the Bible anymore. We're just absolutely stunned whenever that kind of thing happens. Our jaws drop to the floor. How can such a strong Christian do such a thing? And the answer is, they really weren't strong. And that's not just a guess, that's a fact. 
Because if they were so strong, they would have resisted those temptations. They would have found the way of escape that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises. But at the end of the day, they were not strong. They just, they just looked strong. It was all outward. And there was not that strength of character that needs to be in place on the inside. Are you maybe familiar with this tree in the Sequoia National Forest that they cut a big tunnel through the middle of? What a really neat deal. You can actually walk right through the base of the trunk of that Sequoia tree. However, in 2017... There was a big Pacific storm. And the famous tunnel tree, it unfortunately came crashing to the ground. Upon further inspection, it was found that even though there was a little bit of life right near the top of that tree, what they found is that there actually had been long-term decay all through the center of that tree. Somebody maybe would say, well, well, duh, Josh, they cut a big hole in the middle of it. What did you expect? But, but they cut that hole out more than a hundred years ago. That tree, for more than a hundred years, it looked strong. It looked so strong, people actually drove their cars through it. It appeared, it had the appearance of being really, really strong. But then one day the storm came and revealed that it wasn't strong. Do you understand that spiritually speaking, there is a vast difference between looking strong and being strong. How are you someone who is strong? What does being strong look like? Being strong comes as a result of maintaining those daily disciplines like, like prayer, and Bible study? You know, as soon as I say that, I, I know that not everybody wakes up and thinks of themselves, oh my, if I don't read my Bible today, I'm going to turn into a heroin addict. Nobody thinks that. But you know what? If you were to ever ask anyone who has flamed out spiritually, if you could get them to be honest and to tell you what happened in their life, if you were to just ask them, hey, what happened to you? You know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you, I didn't read my Bible regularly. I didn't pray regularly. I didn't attend worship regularly. I didn't associate with my brothers and sisters in Christ regularly. And as a result, I got weaker and weaker and weaker long before I ever even committed or even had the thought of committing that big sin that led to the big fatal disaster, I had become anemic and weak and sickly whether anybody else noticed it or not. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus noticed it. In Revelation chapter 3, in Revelation chapter 3, as Jesus addresses a letter to the church at Sardis, Jesus says this to some Christians who were giving off an appearance of being strong and being alive. In Revelation 3 and in verse 1, He says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up, verse 2, and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Jesus sees right through the veneer of mere churchianity, doesn't He? And what Jesus says is He says, Get it together. Get it together. Stop trying to fool others. Stop trying to maybe even fool yourself. Get back to the basics. You continue on reading into verse 3. I think that's part of what Jesus says. Go back to those things that you have known and you have heard from the beginning because you are on the brink of disaster. And this morning, I do not mean to be overly simplistic as if to say somehow that reading your Bible every day and praying every day, that that will vaccinate you against any and every temptation. That's, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. But at the end of the day, it does come down to just some very simple ideas. Because the person who is regularly listening to God and responding to God in His message through the written Word, the person who is regularly talking to God and asking God to be conformed to His will, that person is taking a huge step to firewalling themselves from the very kinds of things that lead to spiritual disaster. What we want to do is we want to build real strength, real vitality, not outward pretend facade stuff but genuine strength of character that is able to withstand the enemy's blows. Because remember, looking strong, that's not the same thing as being strong. One final verse, and I'll put it on the screen for you. In 1 Peter chapter 5, this is in verse 8. In 1 Peter 5 and in verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Some of you may remember back in 2015, there was an American tourist, her name was Catherine Chappelle, and she was driving through a lion park in Johannesburg, South Africa, where she was attacked and she was killed by a lion. You're probably thinking to yourself right now, wait, wait just a second, Josh, she's in a car. How did that happen? I've never known of a lion that's been able to take their paw and open a car door. What happened there? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Despite the many signs that were posted throughout the park that said over and over and reminded visitors keep your windows rolled up. Catherine Chappelle, she rolled her window down because she wanted to take better pictures of a pride of lions that she saw. And so she rolled her window down to get for her a better shot. And as a lion began to approach her vehicle, other cars that were also in line, they began to honk their horns, trying to let her know, roll your window up, lady. Don't do this. What are you doing? But she, she kept on snapping her pictures until suddenly a lion lunged in through the open window and tore her to pieces. What a disaster. What a terrible, 
catastrophe. How does a preacher, how does an elder or a deacon, how does a Bible class teacher, how does a song leader, how does a good sister who we always notice is taking food to the sick, how is a brother that's always got just an encouraging word on his lips, How do those two seemingly strong Christians like Hymenaeus and Alexander, how do those people make a shipwreck, a disaster of their Christianity? Well, the Bible maps it out for us, doesn't it? The Bible does. That happens whenever we allow sin to not be taken seriously in our lives. That happens whenever we let little steps to just gradually, over time, lead us away. And it happens whenever we neglect our daily discipleship and we become weak. In short, it happens when we ignore the warning signs that God's Word is placing right in front of us and the devil is there prowling about like a roaring lion, waiting for that opportunity to strike and to wreak spiritual disaster in our lives. The question for you and I now is, what will we do in order to prevent that from happening? Would you pray with me, please? Our dear gracious God and our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you today sobered, by the clear warnings of Your Word. Father, we do come confessing that too many times we are not sober-minded and we're not watchful. And Father, we can only, as we think back to those times, we can only praise You and thank You for sparing us from whatever disaster was waiting around the corner. Father, we ask that You would help us, that You would give us more fear of our adversary. Help us to see just how deceptive Satan can be and help us to develop a more serious attitude toward the daily battle that we wage with sin and temptation. Father, strengthen us. We recognize that our enemy is strong, but we know that you are stronger. And so we ask you to give us courage, and we ask you to help us to realize that if we will draw near to you, Lord, that he will indeed flee from us. We thank you so much for Jesus, who gives us the victory over sin and over death. And it is through his precious name that we offer this prayer. And amen.